Hey, Ryan here. Does your company have a commercial or industrial IoT project coming down the pipe? Reach out to Vary and let our world-class specialists in hardware, software, data science, and design bring it to life. It hurts me as a hardware guy, I think, to not defend the edge more strongly because I always want to build bigger, cooler pieces of hardware. But at the same time, you have to build the right thing for your application. And if you don't need that horsepower that close to the the machines, then you're just wasting your money, wasting your time. Talk to the customer. What are the basic things they're looking for that will guide you? Don't just do it because it's cool or it's the new hot thing or you want to go buy more hardware to put on-prem. Budget overruns, brick devices, data breaches, building connected products is hard. Welcome to Over the Air, sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. I'm your host, Ryan Prosser. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT, connected devices, and the journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very. And today we have part two of The Godfather Returns. Rob Tiffany here on the show. We're going to be taking questions from the audience. We're also joined once again by Bill Flaherty. Bill is the practice lead, uh, the hardware practice lead here at Very, formerly of MIT's Lincoln Labs. And the three of us are going to be taking some live questions. Bill, thanks for being on the show again. I'm really happy to be here, Ryan. And Rob, welcome back for what I believe is your fourth episode here on Over the Air. Well, I'm really honored. That's serious stuff. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, we love having you. Okay, let's get started. Our first question comes to us from Jackson, Tennessee, an absolute gem of a town. Riley, thanks for being on Over the Air. What can we do for you? Hi, Ryan. Thank you. Our organization is slow to change and generally risk averse, but we're also very successful and healthy, and uh, we're not yet feeling tons of pressure to move into a smart factory approach. Uh, it's been tough to build the case to modernize our plant and reinstrument our machines. I keep hearing advice to start small, but without many super practical examples, do you have some examples of small wins or low-risk use cases to connect machines, capture data, and use it to improve a process? We're not talking about full end-to-end reinstrumentation, but literally one test or simulation or digital twin to baby step our way into the next thing. Risk aversion in industrial. We see this a lot. So it sounds like Riley's question is around organizational change, something we were talking about last time. Uh, Rob, let's start with you. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, because you're right. Like last time, the organizational change, we're trying to get IT and OT people to work together to to do things kind of in that Industry 4.0 thing, digital transformation, and why it's important maybe to have a sandbox or be able to simulate something. You know, the great thing is if you're using digital twins with your industrial IoT stuff, when you're doing these big changes, you can use them to de-risk situations, especially when you're in a risk-averse situation with your organization. And so if it's a product, if it's a process, you create the thing digitally, you simulate and test things digitally and then when you deploy them at runtime, you know, you're hydrating digital twins with data about how these systems, things, assets, machines are working, right? I'm a big fan of leaning on twins to, to help us out there. It's probably not where you thought I'd be going as far as organizational change, but let the twins help us. Does any of this make sense, Bill? Yeah, I think so. Like, you know, it's tough 
we talked in the last episode about convincing uh, someone to let you go onto the floor and and make changes to a machine, right? And like that's just such a big challenge to overcome. But if you can start with just the digital twin, right, and you can start like showing value and providing that value without having to go and you know mess with their their baby, yeah. as so to speak, right? You can you can really you know, change hearts and minds in a big way if you can start to show that value without having to go in first and uh, you know put wrenches onto uh, onto metal. Absolutely. I, I'm a big believer as we move forward in this coming decade towards Industry 4.0 that digital twins is going to be one of our biggest helpers to bring these things together because we were absolutely going to do, just like you said there, Bill, with the, those other constituents, let's do this whole thing digitally. Let's show this machine, this motor digitally. Let's see how it behaves. You know, So you're building a twin. A twin is a data structure, right? There's views of a twin. It could be like a 3D model. It could be VR glasses. It could be an Excel spreadsheet. But you can, twins can have KPIs. Twins can trigger behaviors when telemetry is coming in. Twins define all the data points that you care about. If it's a car, you know, I've got four tires and tire pressure. I've got engines and everything. I can simulate that with twins. You could put fake data Fire just like you had IoT platform because IoT is plumbing basically. I can fire fake data at the twin of the thing that maybe we're cautious about, and we can see how it behaves in the digital world to add a level of comfort to the organization that might be risk averse. There, yeah, I think what's really interesting too is this the digital twin concept. It's not just big industry, right? I mean, it certainly is being used there. I saw it at GE with you know advances in digital twinning for for large jet engines. But it's also being done in R&D departments, right? It's it, it can be used both for these big deployed pieces of hardware in the field, but also as you're just trying to invent something new or develop something new, it's it, it can be really useful to have that digital twin to play with because, you know, I, I'm a hardware guy, but hardware takes a while, right? It, it, there are fundamental time limitations that you can't overcome to cut a piece of metal or, or print a circuit board. And so having those uh, to help you in your development process can be a huge win. Yeah. You know, Dr. Michael Greaves, who's kind of the father-ish of digital twins, even though I know NASA was doing it before him, but he's the one who really got it going. And, uh, you know, he just likes to talk about, you know, we screw up all the time when we're building hardware. And it's a lot cheaper to screw up in the digital world than the physical world. Massively cheaper. (laughs) You know, for I think a lot of uh, engineers and folks from the industrial world are probably following along with the conversation. I don't think we're breaking a lot of ground. Digital Twin certainly appears to be having a moment in 22. For any marketers or business people that have accidentally wandered into this podcast and they're wondering what in God's name a digital twin is, the way that I have described this, you know, there's this concept that's been around for a long time in the business world, in marketing world, A-B testing, testing things in parallel with each other, seeing which approach is superior. I just described digital twins as A-B testing at massive scale. I mean, I, is that like, can you two as engineers live with that? Is that accurately enough capture digital twins that us non-engineers could use that as a simplified, I don't know, overly reductive uh, description of digital twins? No, it's great. If I ask 100 different people what the definition of a digital twin is, I still get 100 different answers. You'll hear things like, hey, it's just a digital representation of a physical object. And then we've gone beyond that to say it could be processed and everything. But absolutely, the massive scale A-B testing, it's an attribute of it. And it when you say that, it you're, te- you're showing the value of the twin just in saying, hey, this is A-B testing at scale. It absolutely makes sense. You know, a lot of people 
when there are a lot of people in the IoT space who've been doing digital twins, a lot of the time they're thinking about at runtime and they totally forget that simulations are a big part, you know, and physics and stuff like that. And so uh, it's great. And it's great that we found a random way to tie digital twins into organizational (laughs) happiness (laughs) and risk aversion. (laughs) Also, digital twins are being thrown around a lot as a foundational component of the metaverse, just to get even weirder. Let's cap the weirdness at that (laughs) for now. Riley, thanks for the question. Today's second question comes to us from, let's see if you guys can figure out where he's from. Jerry, welcome to Over There. What can we do for you? Thanks, Ryan. We've tried to connect our machines and finally be able to answer with confidence some basic questions around utilization and OEE. Our first attempt taught us a ton about the strengths and limitations of our internal team. It just seems like no matter how straightforward the project appears at the outset, the complications layer is pretty clustered. We're ready to take the hill again, this time with an external tech partner. The world seems pretty fragmented and a little daunting. What are two or three gotta-have characteristics that I should look for in a third-party partner? I know enough to know we don't need to be all custom, but 100% off-the-shelf isn't the answer either. Are there reputable shops out there that can toe the line with success, or am I about to embark on a fool's errand? So the correct answer was Boston. And I love this question. Of course, I think I'm a little bit biased. Guys, what do you think? Yeah, I think the key is really finding a partner who understands and appreciates that the end-to-end nature of the problem, right? So so problems, they aren't software problems, hardware problems, data science problems. They're, they're everything problems these days, right? And if you silo your your partners into these different buckets, then you never get that kind of interconnectedness that's required to really make something successful. You need that that high level view, what I love to call it like systems level thinking. Right. And so finding a partner who's able to do that, to have that kind of, you know, 30,000 foot view and attack every corner of the problem from, you know, software to hardware to whatever else you might need. That's how you win. Right. That's how you get solutions that are are highly integrated, that are functional and, and do what you need them to do. Absolutely. Those partners are probably hard to come by. You know, when you're talking about OEE on machines in a factory, you know, it's like, who am I reaching out to who knows about that stuff, but also spans software and data science and other types of soft engineering, right? At the same time, it whittles down that list of partners really, really fast. You know, when industrial IoT started getting hot, Every consulting firm on the planet created a new IoT practice, and they thought it was just going to be like IT, and we're going to go into these cubicles, and we're going to be writing software. Oh, what is this factory thing? You know, oh, why am I on a farm? Why am I at a mine? Well, guess what? Those type of partners are harder to come by and to finding that end-to-end experience like Bill's talking about. So it's super critical. Absolutely. And just the notion of, can I just buy something off the shelf that's going to do that whole thing? I haven't seen it, you know, and I've been in the business of building those off the shelf things that are trying to do as much as possible. We know IoT has got a lot of complexity. It requires a lot of domain experience in lots of areas. And it's hard to find one product, let alone one person who knows how to do all that stuff. And so uh, having a partner that has that kind of expertise in-house, it's hard to come by. And it's super critical for success for these projects, for sure. Yeah, you need people who are as comfortable having uh, dirt under their fingernails as they are hammering away at a keyboard. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe hammering away at a keyboard while wearing a hard hat. (laughs) Yeah. 
All right. Great question, Jerry. Thanks. All right. Our final caller comes to us from Nashville, the bachelorette capital of the world. Bill, what's on your mind? <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Uh, I recently read that up to 75% of enterprise data could be processed at the edge by 2025. I understand the practical benefits of the edge, but how realistic is it for large enterprises to get there? Between security and breach concerns, internal resistance, whatnot, I'm feeling that the edge could be a darling concept that might not ever scale. Are there solutions out there to help tackle the security concerns around edge computing? What an interesting question. So I think this could go a lot of different ways. It feels to me that the question is asking, when are we going to enter the tall part of the bell curve where something has occurred that brings this into the mainstream? But that's my interpretation. What do you guys think? 75% of enterprise data process at the edge by 2025. So 100% of data comes from the edge or the endpoint. You know, I've the whole definition of the edge is kind of this floating thing. It's fl trying to float around your bell curve somewhere, probably. People, when I was starting out doing edge stuff, it was kind of like kind of like Bill talking about GE type stuff and factory stuff. There was like the edge gateways, right? That had RS-232 serial ports, whatever, talking to maybe a number of machines or a PLC or something like that. And then as we amped up some compute power on endpoint devices, the edge potentially moved closer. Like, you know, because the edge computing was all about getting closer to the source of the data, right? And so it was, it wasn't the cloud but it was somewhere closer to the machine. And then it could be right on the machine if your microcontrollers you know, have enough compute. Now we're seeing people using tiny ML and stuff like that. And you don't even need that. You could just do a bunch of if this and that stuff and get value there. So the edge is there. When I went and spent some time at Ericsson in the telecom world, well, guess what? Those telecom folks were late to the party on the edge. And they said, Oh, the edge. Is that like the edge of the cellular network? Well, yes, it is. We're going to do edge computing in base stations at the bottom of cell towers or in all these metro data centers that are hidden in every city that are owned by mobile operators that you don't even know about before you get out to the open internet. The whole thing about the edge initially was latency, could have been about security. You know, I need the answer to my question in milliseconds. It used to mean I need you to be on the LAN. <laughs> with the machine that's giving me the data. So a whole lot of people who weren't winners in the great cloud sweepstakes, all of a sudden they're the ones talking the most about the edge, along with all those other players who didn't win who said, oh, multi-cloud strategy is definitely where it is. That's what you say when you didn't win in the hyperscale cloud wars. But that's fine. Everybody's got their thing, right? And so and so I think that's where so it's great to have statistics where we're going to process all this stuff instead of the cloud. That's just somebody throwing darts at the cloud. Anyway, I'm just kind of rambling here. Bill, I'm sure you have something more intelligent to say than I did. <laughs> well, no, I think I agree with what you're saying uh, a thousand percent, Rob. Like the, you know, when folks ask me like, oh, you know, can we do this on the edge? A lot of the times my my question to them is, is why? Right, like the edge has the edge compute has some real discrete uses. If you need to make a decision in milliseconds to microseconds, sure, you need to put compute power on the edge that can do that math, that can make that decision. If you have seconds to minutes to hours to days, you're just wasting money putting hardware that can do that kind of edge compute. Right. The other thing that you see a lot is privacy. That's a big one, right? I mean, the great example there is Apple with Face ID. Right? They do that compute on the edge so that your face model never leaves your phone. 
that's important, right? It has its use case, but a lot of times for you know industrial type applications, that's not really a concern. You're not sending personally identifiable information up there. And, you know, the the cloud services can be, they are very secure as long as you set it up properly, right? And so you don't have to worry about data leaks and things like that. So it definitely has its place. And it it hurts me as a hardware guy, I think, to not defend the cloud more uh, to the the edge more strongly, because I always want to build bigger, cooler pieces of hardware. But at the same time, you have to build the right thing for your application. And you know, if if you don't need that horsepower that close to the to the machines, then you're, you're just wasting your money, wasting your time. Absolutely. Good. That's good for Mr. Hardware down here to just come right out and say what he feels about your wasting money and time. <laughs> Remember, the revolution that we're having right now is driven by the cloud. The edge is a place we already were. That was called the PC revolution and doing everything locally, which was the pendulum swinging from the mainframe thing, Right. And so as soon as they started putting compact computers on everybody's desk a long time ago. And so are we swinging back and forth? To Bill's point, talk to the customer. What are the basic things they're looking for that will guide you? Don't just do it because it's cool or it's the new hot thing or you want to go buy more hardware to put on-prem. If the customer says something like, well, you know what? It costs me more money. Like I've got this giant machine in my factory and it's spitting out terabytes of data every hour. And I don't know if I want to spend all the money to send data, that amount of data over expensive bandwidth to a distant cloud to munch on it for a while to get an answer back, you know? And so that might be a reason to do some local edge compute, maybe right there on the factory floor. And then also to your point, get the, if I need the answer in macro, microseconds, nanoseconds, whatever, yeah, you're probably going to need to do it locally. You know what? Right job for the right purpose, right? You know, right tool for the right job, all that kind of good stuff, you know? Well, and, you know, the more you put on the edge, the more responsibility you take on to manage it, right? I mean, yes. the cloud is just edge hardware that you're not managing that takes a little bit longer to talk to, right? Like, there's still hardware there, there and is. you just don't have to touch it. There's your new tagline. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Also, edge is more complex. I know this might sound strange to people. Cloud is a one-to-many hub-and-spoke kind of uh, architectural design pattern. Edge is a whole bunch of minis talking to even more minis, and they need to be orchestrated by one. And so as soon as you're deploying tens of thousands of edge nodes to manage millions of endpoints, you've got an orchestration level of complexity that's unimaginable. And so it's just harder to do. Thanks for the question, Bill, from Nashville. I've got a follow-up question for our Bill Flaherty here today before we wrap. So, Bill, uh, Rob said a few minutes ago, Edge is somewhere we've already been. Another place that we've already been as humans is the moon. 1972, in fact, I believe was the last time we were back, although some people would claim we never were there. I think it's crazy. You could watch it with a telescope, but that's for another day's episode. 1972, we're going back in 2025, according to NASA. They're gearing up. Uh, Folks are getting really excited about this. I think it's going to be super cool. World according to Bill Flaherty, talk about edge compute differences 1972 to 2025. Where's some of the big, doesn't have to be edge. You could talk about cloud, which wasn't a thing at that time. I think they were just starting to talk about system of systems, even, but mostly it was mainframe. What do you think we're going to see as some of the most striking differences from the vantage point of 2025 versus 1972, strictly through the lens of compute? 
Yeah, well, that's an interesting question, and you're gonna test my uh, my Apollo history here as I try and recall some some facts to back up some of this. But I mean, the computers that they used in the Apollo mission were orders of magnitude less powerful than what we all carry in our pockets today, right? Like, it's really hard, I think, as as humans to comprehend the the difference in computational power that we have available to us now versus versus back then. Now. 10 years ago, if we had been having this conversation, I would have said, and that's great, but NASA doesn't like risk. We're probably not going to see any of that new technology in these missions, right? We're going to be using legacy tech. But I think what's really exciting is that there's, you know, we talked in the last episode, I think it was about SpaceX and about what they did. And, you know, these new private space companies have really opened up, I think, the the world to using newer technology on some of these missions, right? And so I think we can see a lot of these new advances in computing get applied into these new space missions. And I think that's what really excites me is, you know, I mean, there's so many incredibly complex things that have to go right all at the same time to send a human being from the Earth all the way out to the moon or, or even to Mars, right? And now, before, a lot of that was done using, you know, math ahead of time. And if something went wrong, like Apollo 13, it was a scramble. Right. And you had to do like, oh, my God, all these people have to have to do all this work to figure it out. Now, you might be able to fix that issue just by asking an algorithm to, to recompute an orbit. Right. Or look at, hey, you know, we've got this amount of oxygen loss and we're looking like, you know, all you have to do is flip this switch. And now we're going to get back on course. And like it just it opens up a whole new world of opportunity in terms of like the types of missions we can take on, the types of exploration we can do. And that's what excites me the most is just to see what we can use this new technology and then expand our horizons even more. So to summarize, it feels like you're saying, you know, greatly increased what I would call mission agility and greatly increased potential for autonomy. So when they go to circumnavigate the moon, they're on the dark side of the moon with no comms. They're, you know, they're able to to do things that are far beyond 1972. Yeah, I mean, and even just the science that we can do because we can talk so much faster and with such higher bandwidth than we could back then, right? Like we can store more data, we can send that data back to the earth faster and we can do more interesting things with it. And so like the the amount that we can learn from putting people out there and, and doing some of that work, I think is it's going to be really astronomical, pun intended. That's good stuff. Rob, the Godfather always gets the last word. What's <laughs> your What are your thoughts on the subject? I guess we didn't have deep learning in the 60s and lots of data to, you know, we had Neil Armstrong with uh, figuring out calculations in his lap on the fly when things went wrong, right? I guess at the end, though, I got to send a lot of love to all those geniuses in the 60s who did the unthinkable and the software they wrote is measured in kilobytes. All the tabs open in my browser right now would crash the Apollo mission because it's using so many resources and memory and CPU in a ridiculous way. And so there's a lot to learn from maybe the best developers of all time back then. Whereas today, I know you read jokes all the time on the internet about different software applications that do almost nothing that, you know, we could go to, we've got probes that are interstellar now that are just using tiny kilobytes of data. And so, uh, you know, I think there's lots to learn from the folks back then, but the fact that we've got all this data and, and we don't always have to rely on heroics by an astronaut when things go wrong. And so it's that edge compute on the spaceship, right? 
edge compute on the satellites with that communication and triangulation and all that stuff. And you know what? Where do we learn the most about space? Movies <laughs> and sci-fi books. Those actually lead the way. I'm really serious. We probably wouldn't think of half the stuff we would without science fiction writers and some of the movies we've seen. Follow-up question for next time. Not going to get into it today because we are once again way over time and we got to get the folks at home to dinner. Robotics in space, I find to be, you know, we've had a lot of robotics companies uh, here on the show. It is a, it is an industry that is moving fast, quick. And, you know, Elon has said, hey, we're going to Mars in, you know, 26, 27. And I wonder at what point it doesn't make sense to send humans anymore on exploratory missions when the robotics you know, when we have robots that can achieve all of the same thing without the need for oxygen, new f- food, etc. So let's pick it up there next time. Very curious to hear you guys' thoughts on what does space travel look like in a human's optional environment? All right, folks, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Join us next time as we discuss what went wrong on the journey that went right. See you guys on the internet. Thanks for being here, guys. Over the Air is brought to you by Very. To find out more about us, head over to verypossible.com and make sure to search for Over the Air and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Very, thanks for listening.